Roland Peens, thank you very much. At Wine Cellar, what's your role here? What's your, what's your title? Uh, Chief Smos, I guess. Uh, uh, you do more than just selling. Yeah, I'm the director of the business and uh, make sure that it's sailing in the right direction and that all the moving parts are moving in the right way so that we can continue uh, our operations and grow into the future. Cool. And what's Wine Cellar's modus operandi as it stands right now? I guess that's a good question. Uh, we are trying to um, sell wines that we truly believe in and that we think are great uh, value at each price point uh, and deliver them to um, anyone and everyone that wants to buy wines um, and try and highlight interesting trends, interesting wines at the same time. Um, we love wines a lot and we have a team that uh, has been um, dedicated to wine for a, for a big part of their lives. And uh, uh, over, the, over the years of working in wine, we, we've come up with a way of selling wine and um, our customers seem to enjoy what we do and they're buying more from us each year. So it's- cool. um, So is it, is, it, is it the same customers buying more or is it more customers as well? Or? It's actually customers buying less, to be honest. Yeah, um, right. Over the last 10 years, our core customers are probably buying less because there's uh, more to buy in the market and um, they're buying less uh, bottles of each wine. Um, if you go back, to give you an example, 20 years, if you were a serious South African uh, a wine buyer 10, uh, 10, 20 years ago, you would have bought um, 24, 36 bottles of the Lima Cab, you would have bought the same amount of Paul Sauer, you would have bought um, your Plain Constantia um, Sauvignon Blanc, you would have bought 60 bottles throughout the year because there was just so few wines available. And yeah, um, okay. move forward at, the, at that quality point. At that quality. Move, yeah. move forward 20 years and our customers are maybe buying six um, of each because uh, it is just no, no need to buy too much and there's just so many other exciting wines out there. Cool. Um, customers can only drink a certain amount every night um, and at some point they get to a point where they've just got too much and, and can't buy anymore. So, um, so it's a, is it a buyer's market more than a seller's market? Is that, it's is always, that... I think it's always been a, a buyer's market and now with the excitement in the industry, it's certainly been a buyer's market, uh, especially on the South African wines. Imports less so just because we have such a, a weak currency, but uh, on the local side, never before has the consumer had s such a range of exciting wines. Yeah. And, um, and that's also helped uh, grow the business. So when did you start at Wine Cellar? Started in 2005. Okay. Um, the business had been going for four years already. Um, I was actually hired to um, start a, a project in Johannesburg and uh, that fell through. It was a wine shop in Johannesburg that um, was closing down and then they we were going to take it over. But that, <clears throat> that didn't go through and um, I then left here and went went to the UK to work as a sommelier in the UK and did a, a fun stint there, learned a lot about the world of wine. Um, and then as I was getting towards winter, my, um, my now colleague, uh, David Bryce, gave me a call and said, the manager's leaving here, would you like to come back? And it was cold, rainy and miserable in the UK. And uh, I was doing the MW at the time. Mm -hmm. and. Um, Doing the MW while being a sommelier was was going to be a daunting challenge. You need, you need time. You need uh, you Gosh. need to have yeah. You need, you need money, but you need focus as well. So yeah. I thought here's a great opportunity to be in South Africa to sell international wines and still study the MW, which uh, worked out well. 
all except for getting the MW, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a good journey. It, it took mm. me almost 10 years and, uh, and I had lots of fun, learned a lot, spent a huge amount of money. Mm. Probably could have bought a house for the same amount. Um, but uh, it, was, it was part of my education, so I mm. don't regret it what, whatsoever. And how did you get into wine originally? What, what was the... Did, was it a family thing? Or did you grow up drinking wine or did you... No, I didn't drink wine at all until I came to Stellenbosch and then really it was about... Stellenbosch University or... Stellenbosch University was about yep. consumption and then anything else. And yeah, I've told the story before, but I, we would go out and I would buy a bottle of Tussenberg and there'd be a little um, reference number on it and that would give you the, the bottling month. Mm. And um, I quick, quickly found out that June 2000 was the best bottling of Tustenberg around and I would be in Tollies and try and you know ask the barman to give me that bottle over that bottle and I'd be rather confused. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, so I, I found out that some wines were different to others and, mm. and then I was lucky enough to stay with a winemaker in my second or third year. Uh, he was a, um, a more senior winemaker or retired winemaker at Bachkelder and uh, he took me around to a lot of the wine estates and uh, instead, of, instead of going to class, I ended up going wine touring. And then I went, uh, I was an avid member of the wine society. Mm -hmm. And uh, my, my week would literally be Tuesday's wine tasting, Thursday's wine tasting, and in between that, mm. definitely not going to, going to class. So yeah, it was all revolved so, so around. So was it, was, was it like, how did you make the, the, the transition from consumption in volume to consumption in quality? Or was it just a natural thing for you? Or is it, was it led by um, said Bergkelder winemaker? Yeah, it was, I guess, just my, my taste buds saying, hey, this wine tastes different to this wine. Uh, you need to pursue this a little bit more. Mm. And uh, I remember you know, going to the supermarket because that's what, all I could afford and spending, spending my, my cash on a Fleur Cup 97 cab because sometimes it would come on special and and that was way better than the than the 96 mm. um, and just seeing that there was differences between these wines and mm. starting to try and understand why there were differences between the wines and um, and that's really what kick-started the journey so I almost finished my degree and um, had a few subjects left to do and then started working at Hamilton Russell um, okay. in the holidays what year was this? 2002, I think. Okay. Yeah, 2002. Um, they just released the 2001 Chardonnay, and it was a great vintage for them. It won lots of awards, and it was the first South African white wine at 100 bucks. Okay, right. First, That's a big deal. First um, three-figure South African white wine. Yeah. Um, I think at that time there was some reds at about 120, 150, but that was the ceiling of South yeah, yeah, Africa. Yeah. And uh, that was quite fun because people would walk in, they couldn't believe that a wine would cost a hundred rand. They thought it was for a case or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I worked a, a stint at the tasting room over that December and then I got to know Kevin Grant. Because your folks are from Hermanus, aren't they? They've yeah. got a house there, so you... Okay, so it was, yeah, okay perfect. So I, that was, I think, my first job in the wine industry. And then uh, the, the holiday season ended and Kevin said to me, seems like you like wine a lot. Do you want to come and work the vintage? And I thought, well, that's a great idea. Um, mm. Let me give it a shot. So first day, grapes hadn't come in yet. Um, okay, Kevin, what do I need to do? Well, we need to move these barrels from this side of the cellar to that side. The whole day, yes. <laughs> so I did that. <laughs> Next day came and I'm like, mm, it's not really what I want to do. <laughs> um, 
Um, manual what labor, do we do? manual what do we... labor wasn't your. Uh, <laughs> what are we your... doing today, Kevin? Okay. Well, no, the grapes still are still hanging. Um, let's let's keep going at that. Halfway through the day, I said, Kevin, I can't do this, and I left. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, imagine if I'd stayed on, I would have. I, I would maybe have been a winemaker today. Maybe. Um, yeah. So then, or still a cellar hand. <laughs> yeah, because well, you, you fucking hated it. <laughs> um, actually, today I like manual labor, gardening, and that sort of thing. But mm. back then, definitely not my forte. Mm. So then I actually got a job um, at the Vineyard Connection, and uh, okay. James was my my boss. Okay, um, James Peterson, who James uh, who Peterson. now works at yeah, Wine Cellar. Mm. Yeah, and that was a fun year as well because we. We got to master South African wine. At that time, they were, the platter book was about a, a fifth of the size. So this is it 03 now? 04? Yeah, about 2003. And we, we knew every South, South African wine. Literally mm. every single South African wine we had tasted. Mm. And um, so we had the finger on the pulse. And yeah, the, 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 the scene was exciting. But if you can compare it today to what it was back then, it, it, was, it was tiny and it certainly wasn't exciting. Mm -hmm. um, the wines were ordinary and they were the same every year most of the time yeah um, so stylistically very similar to every like people had found their their niche and they were just plugging plotting along yeah, yeah okay. um, no one was really pushing the boundaries why, why do you think that was i mean just it was just this the safety of, of the status quo or was it i mean well these things take time you know if you go back the sort of first modern producers i would coin as maybe thelema and their first vintages were late 80s early 90s and they were sort of front runners and then um, a lot of plantings mid late 2000s and um, so people were just starting to find their feet the f you know the front runners in my view were people like ken forrester um brevet rats because they were the ones taking that negotiation model that neil ellis uh sort of coined in the in the 70s and really pushing it out and mm. and doing um things that no one else was doing i mean brevet and ken making shannon in the late 90s, early 2000s, was completely against the grain. Mm. Um, and and I never, I don't think they got the credit that they actually... Um, well, I think now, deserve. retrospectively, certainly yeah. um, Ken has got for FMC. Yeah. But yeah, Brevet, obviously, he, the self-proclaimed Shannon King, <laughs> he's getting more plaudits these days for his, his reds, his yeah. Cabernet Franc-based wines. But um, yeah, so they were, they were the ones um, really... Uh, um, was there pushback from the customers about these Chenin Blancs or was there interest or because what, what were people buying in white wine was it mostly Chardonnay jeez I remember James and I getting excited about the latest vintage of Sauvignon Blanc and uh, wow it's got such amazing tropical notes on it how do they do it you yeah, know it's so vibrant yes yeah, yeah. Springfield Life from Stone and Special Cuvée were just wines that you know people couldn't believe um, and big reds I remember <clears throat> so I, I finished at the Vineyard Connection then I started working in Constantia um, first in the wine shop and then as a, a rep and then as a sommelier at Le Calam mm -hmm. and I remember then I went to London to to take up the sommelier position and I took over a bottle of Glen Carlu Syrah 2001 or 2002 I'm not mistaken was platter wine of the year and i was like wow show the world platter wine of the year you're and gonna be like mr south african wine ambassador <laughs> exactly yeah, okay so i got the sommelier gig in london and uh, at, at a really nice uh restaurant it was by no means fine dining but they had a thousand skews so we could um taste so from, yeah okay we tasted everything i mean mm -hmm. that year i was tasting 
Mouton 82 regularly, Krug, um, uh, there were 15 Polinis on the list, so I knew all the Polini producers. Um, and uh, so one of the first uh, weekends, a whole bunch of Psalms got together and said, just bring a bottle. I'm like, oh, I've got exactly the right bottle. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm going to take the Glen Carlis Syrah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I rock up there and guys have got uh, Dom Perignon, Unotec and, you know, some really cool corners. And here I have, and I've got my Glen Carlis and you open it and it's just the sweet, ripe, boring wine. And I think, oh my gosh. Yeah, just, uh, yeah. Mind has been, uh, you know, exploded. Yeah. Um, and then I realized really that's how far, far behind we were. And yeah. um, so when I came back and started working a wine cellar in earnest. So just, just quickly, just mm. going back to that, how quickly did you? I mean, what was the ex? Maybe um, try and verbalize your sort of your mental shift while in in London and tasting obviously mostly old world wines, mostly classic old world wines that you weren't tasting previously in South Africa. I mean, there is a very big stylistic difference. Did, did, did they, were they immediately um, appealing to you or did it sort of, did it, did it yeah, take completely. a little while or did you, did you try your first burgundy and you go, oh, it's a bit light and a bit fucking funky, a bit, or did you go, fuck, this is the business? Yeah, I mean, what was amazing about those, about working in a restaurant like that is there was vintages that were mature. So, mm. you know, I still remember a costurey 1990 Merso, which I was lucky enough to sell and pouring myself a nice little whack and putting in the back in, in the in the in the cellar room and and enjoying it after service or during service and thinking this is the best wine I've ever had in my life yeah. um, and being able to taste literally the pinnacle wines at 23 years old um, and uh, so my immediately my benchmark was pushed all the way to the to the brink to the maximum mm -hmm. and then realizing how far behind we were mm. and then being Amongst, you know, and I give the Polini example again, we'd have customers walking into the restaurant and say, oh, I'd love to drink a Polini Monarché for lunch, please, chap. And then I'd say, okay, well, which one would you like? What sort of style? Oh, you know, I, I like the rich style, blah, blah, blah. And then I'd say, well, then I, th I think you should try the, um, the Domaine de Fleuve, Le Pousselle, because that's a, you know, and I didn't have a clue what the Domaine de Le Fleuve was like. I just needed to taste it myself. Yes, yes. So I would go through the wine you list. steer your customers in, in <laughs> yeah. whichever direction you chose. Um, just to taste all of the wines. And mm. I think over four months, I got to, to drink every single wine on that wine list just mm. because I knew they were all good wines. So I just needed to try them. And, and who was buying those wines? I mean, was it? Well, there was a chief sommelier. They actually, um, the, the, the time, at that time, the, the head wine buyer was Walter Speller, who actually works for, well, has worked for Jansus and he's now more than an Italian um, specialist. Um, but it was the Conrad Group, so they oh, okay. they had you know lots of um, depth in their wine portfolio, yeah. and um, but mostly focused on very classic yeah areas. Yeah, classic I mean, producers. Yeah. There were yeah. there were new world wines. I remember being blown away by American Chardonnays at that time. That mm -hmm. was the height of the Parkerdom, really, wasn't mm -hmm. it? And um, you know the world was being bowled over by those yeah. Rainies and Kistlers and mm -hmm. so on, which now I find over the top. Kongsgard, Kongsgard. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, so that gave me good perspective and then thankfully when I moved back to South Africa to start s selling wines in earnest or managing wine cellar, that's what we were dealing with. We were dealing with um, Bordeaux, Rhone, Burgundy, Champagne, um, Italians, 
So I was immediately in amongst that, and that's yes. what I was drinking on a daily basis. And I, for the MW, I needed to drink and taste those wines as much as I could. So, what was the purpose of the MW? Was it just a challenge, or was it the, the quest for knowledge? Or well, no, it? it was a it was a complete challenge. Yeah. You know? but was, that was that was the driving force for you. Yeah, yeah. And I'm certainly not an academic. I mean, I hardly studied at university, so it was a big challenge for me academically. Mm. And I was very close the first year, um, and I got. Less close as I'm going to try. That first year, I think the, the ignorance was probably what what made me do so well. I was, oh, okay. I was very close to passing in the first yeah. year, and then as I realised how daunting it was, um, the it got more. Yeah, it got yeah, more and more yeah. difficult. And and I think also life opened up for me, and I just thought, well, you know, I'm spending so much time on this. I'm these are my best years of my life in my early twenties. You know, why should I be sitting and studying? Um, so that. That was difficult, um, but yeah, I got to travel. I went to all around the world to travel with the MW students, and as I say, taste. I mean, I remember Saturday mornings was Kathy Finsale and Chris Williams and uh, Richard Kershaw and uh, a couple other guys, and we were. Was Richard Kelly still in, in around then? Or he uh, just left. Just left. Okay. Um, and uh, I, re I remember Richard actually gave us a, a cool a blind tasting while we were MW students. And that was Saturday morning, doing blind tastings, um, and it got a bit much yeah, at yeah, some yeah. point. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to enjoy wine, and mm. and uh, when you study in MW, it's very difficult to enjoy wine. It really is. Are you naturally an ambitious person? You think or not? I think so. Um, I like growth. I think mm. if you're not growing in some way, then you you're moving backwards because the world is growing and the world is moving forward. And if you mm. if you don't ride that wave and grow yourself personally, you literally will get left behind. And, Especially now, so with technology and with the way things will change, if you don't, if you don't push yourself, um, no one else, no one else is going to push you. You need to be able to push yourself. Yeah. And how are you pushing yourself at the moment in that sense? Yeah, it's business. Business is extremely challenging to yeah. run a business in South Africa. I mean, we have red tape um, to deal with. We have. Well, let's talk. Let's, let's talk about the positives and the negatives. Yeah. I mean, what what, what are you? Doing? Let's start with the negatives. We're already on there, so. What red tapes are you finding as a, I mean, is it mostly the, the importing, the logistics, the, the financial dealing, things? Dealing with SARS, I mean, there's SARS, one yeah, thing, okay. one big the thing. The revenue service, um, yeah. You know, we have uh, dealing often with uh, the part of agriculture, for instance, that can be quite tricky. Otherwise, running a business in South Africa, I think, is quite easy. If you want to do something, you can set it up and do it. Um, mm. there's, so, low there's low barrier to entry, for mm, sure. I think so. So what's what the agriculture department? How does that affect you? No, I mean, uh, luckily that's not covered by me anymore. But I remember the early days, we would really struggle to get wines in. We'd have to actually give bottles to the department to analyze. Um, okay, so and, the importing... Yeah, but now, yeah. Uh, frankly, that's not a big issue at the moment. Okay. Um, um, once you've got the, the system sorted. Uh, yeah. But rules do change. Um, I mean, they still have some very archaic rules, as you might know, that if you have... The same wine in a different bottle size, you need a new certificate for it. But if it's the same... And what does that certificate... The certificate is for what? What is it? Like, is it, it a... basically says that you're allowed to import it. It's been approved by the Department of Agriculture. Okay. Uh, but if it's a new vintage of the same wine, which could be completely different, it might be even from a different area, or then it, it's the same certificate. So yeah. those rules haven't changed since yeah. I've been here. It's 15 years. And why do those certificates exist, do you think? I mean, why? I mean, well, it's just the way that it was done back in the day. Oh, I get that. But mm. I mean, is it a, a revenue driver? Is it a? I guess is so. it insuring? 
No, they're certainly legitimate, we have. Legitimate but the Department imports. of Agriculture is one of the best um, quality certification systems in wine around the world. Mm. Um, because I, I import to Australia, I don't need any certificates to go into Australia. So I'm just wondering why they exist. Well, it's a quality, it's a, supposed to be a quality yeah. um, seal, mm. um, but the organization it, hasn't kept up with the stylistic and structural changes within the industry. Is it not because there was a, a sort of like a, a scourge of um, fake wine coming in back in the, the days of... Possibly. Of, uh, Sanctions. Sure. Like Could have been. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know, but that's what's if one you look of the excuses I've been presented in if, the past. If you look at Austria, for instance, you mm. know, that uh, guy called Scandal, late 80s, early yeah, 90s, yeah, yeah. that the 80s, yeah. killed the industry for 20 mm. years. Mm. So to, in, to mitigate against that, it makes sense and try and keep a tight control. And, you know, liquor does need to be controlled in, in, in a country, in any country, really, I mm. guess. So. Yeah, so that's not an issue. Okay. Um, I think the eco economics is tough. I mean, to try and import wine when you have the most volatile currency in the world, that's just, mm. that's a nightmare. Why is it the most volatile? Well, that is goes it, down to the fundamental is, is, economics is, is, is of our country. Is a very complicated answer? Because <laughs> I don't know these things. I can't um, know. Well, the technical reason is we've got um, a very good monetary policy in South Africa mm -hmm. and um, a very liquid currency, which means uh, that... Currency traders around the world are able to buy and sell bonds and currency in South Africa very easily. And um, because we're considered part of the of the emerging markets, um, it's a very easy place to invest. And so, if money can come in quickly and it can go out quickly, then and if sentiment changes, then um, quite easily can be massive outflows of cash. It's and quite an attractive option for for people for in, for in, hedging. In yeah, business. I mean yeah. the. the there's been recent scandals uh, about um, traders, um, I'm not going to mention the bank, but um, that have been caught out by literally just devaluing or inflating the rand just to make money. So we're at the peril of, of, of our system and it really it boils down to a very good system that was put in place and um, exchange, exchange controls that we have. Mm. Yeah, so I mean if you look at 2010, we were trading at 10 to the euro when I started here in 2005. I think it was around 6 to the euro. Um, I remember we were selling Cote de Rhone for 45 rand. Um, you know, now Cote de Rhone is between two and 300. Um, back then, we would sell Cote de Rhone and there would be, not be a South African wine that would be comparable in quality or style. Yeah, but I mean, volatile to me, and I could, I, I could have the... the um the definition wrong it means that it goes up and down quite often. It just seems yeah. to go one way though, mostly. Well, it, it's, I guess it's depreciated, um, it's depreci depreciated from beginning since I worked here, 2005, mm. through to the peak was maybe, what, two years ago? Um, so from 16 maybe, I think. Yeah. Six to 18, 18, 19 to the euro. And now it's been pretty stable over the last couple of years at around 16. And I think, it's workable, but um, it's certainly not presenting value, especially with fine wines increasing in price worldwide. Um, and frankly, you know, we, 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 we used to sell cheaper imports because there was a demand for quality wines at that price. But now South African wines are just so good at, at the lower end, um, it's not worth importing cheap imports. Imports anyway. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. I mean, I looked at importing some Australian wine, and that's even more expensive than European because of the duties involved. Yeah, and I was looking at sort of just like a, 
I mean, an average Yarra Valley Chardonnay, not a shit one, mm. not, a, not an absolutely great one. It was coming in and it would be, would have been had to sell at the same price as a top end, like proper top end South African Chardonnay. Yep. So, well, no not worth gonna, it. Yeah, I mean, it'll be it'll be an interesting bottle in the lineup, but that's about it. It's not actually. Yeah, a, I mean, it's not actually a business. You can go into Checkers. They've got some pretty well-known imports in their in their in their shelves and under 100 bucks you can buy yeah the one two euro jobbies yeah you can buy pretty pretty amazing appellations but if you drink those wines they're they're not exciting no and then why why buy a, an unexciting Cote de Rhone or Saint-Emilion over a, a really nice South African cab at 150 bucks or yeah. 180 rand or whatever yeah. so um so we you know, our average price of import is way over 500 bucks. It's, mm. We're importing, you know, top-end wines, which is what our customers would um, would like to buy. And um, on that, what do you think of South Africans' wine strengths in terms of styles or varieties currently? In the, in the, in the world sort of type of thing. Because, I mean, for example, I mean, I, I, I like sherry. I'm not going to buy South African versions of sherry because it's shit, yeah. in my opinion. Mm, so I'm, I'm happy to buy entry-level, you know, actual Jerez sure. sherry. Because um, but, I'm, no I'm, but I'm not going to buy a Cote de Rhone, basic Cote de Rhone, probably no. ever again in my life unless no. I have to because the offering here for Shiraz blends is, or Syrah is blends right there. is, is, is over-delivering at the price. Exactly. Um, yeah, so we, we're, we're doing that well. I think we're doing Chardonnay really well. Um, to, to get a Burgundy or an international Chardonnay at our sort of quality point is, is difficult. That said, Chardonnay is ramped up in price. Radically, um, domestically, domestically. Yeah. Um, so why, why is that? Do you think is that just because the wines are getting better? They're getting more yeah, popular getting and better, highly rated, selling out. I mean, yeah. we sell the, a lot of Chardonnay. Um, the market's working up, is it? South African Chardonnay is great. I think there's a tipping point. I mean, if you look at the Restless River Chardonnay, that that was expensive when it came out, but now it's, it looks almost cheap. You know, it's um, it looks sort of mid-range-ish mm. or upper mid-range. Yeah. Whereas I think some of the guys have gone a bit too far. I think the Kershaw is now over six hundred bucks, and that's when you're like, mm, I can kind of I can buy a Pellini for that price almost. Um, should I be drinking Kershaw or Pellini? And that's where the, the question starts. You know, begging is should I buy imports? Um, so really, we have to look at the imports more carefully than what we used to. We used to just, if we imported Chiputia, we'll import the whole range. Now, yes. if we import Chiputia, we'll, okay, this one offers something completely different, this one, and really select the SKUs that you, that mm -hmm. you want, um, and make sure that the wines are exciting. And we've had to try and offer more exciting wines. Um, and Chiputia is a good example where 10 years ago, we had really good demand for Chiputia because it was, it was new, it was Rhone, it was something mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. Now it's, yeah, it's Chiputia, it's a bit more unexciting and yeah, um, yeah. can't you bring in something a little bit more unknown that's more niche. Uh, more niche. Yeah. And, um, as people now know Chiputia and they want to drink something different. Yeah, as they see it in airports around the world, they say they're less inclined to buy it for exactly. their Exactly. Yeah. So we actually don't import Chiputia anymore. Yeah. Well, not all of them, no. Yeah, okay. And what other, I mean, you said Chardonnay and Syrah blends. I mean, Shannon obviously is a, is a huge part of the South African vineyard. Yeah, Shannon, I think uh, we sell more Shannon than any other wine. Um, oh, really? Yeah, well, at least white. That's positive. Yeah, Shannon is number one seller for sure. Yeah. Shannon and Chardonnay, and uh, then you know anything else comes way way third. Is uh, that a change in the, the Shannon numbers? Have they gone up in terms of over time? I think we've always sold a lot of Shannon. Okay. Um, I mean, when Ratz was making Shannon, that was probably one of our biggest sellers. Okay. Um, uh, but Chardonnay has always been a good seller. 
Um, I think when James arrived three or four years ago, he put Sauvignon Blanc on our list for the first time. Um, but it's never going to be a big part of what we sell. Um, Why is that? Well, it's, uh, it just doesn't offer... Well, this is a big debate. You know, is Sauvignon Blanc a profound varietal? And uh, yes, yeah, sure. Uh, there's some really smart Sancerre, Puy Fumés and Bordeaux Whites, um, which make incredible long-ranging wine. But have we got there in South Africa? I think on the white blends we have. Um, but on straight Sauvignon, I think very few can be considered fine wines. Most of them are more beverages and um, grapes when it's 30 degrees outside and you buy the pool to smash some Sauvignon. But, but again, they're not, they're not selling at Chardonnay price. They're not selling for 600 no, grams at all. Yeah. So most of them come in way under what we want to sell. We, we, once it is not geared towards selling 100 rand bottles of wine. Okay. Um, so we, um, yeah, we, we sell wines that we enjoy. And then, you know, the Trezant Sauvignon, I think is really good. It mm. offers lots of com complexity and and character at a hundred bucks and it's not everywhere so that's a good one that we'd like to, that we like selling um but we're not going to go and sell much of the springfield because it's everywhere yeah um, and obviously the demand isn't there otherwise you would do it i mean the demand from your customers isn't there that people are saying we must have sauvignon blanc no, no. but we do sell sauvignon blanc yeah. and we'd love to sell more border whites but mm. customers are not buying them we yeah we i drank a fachlich and 15 border whites last week mm. It's as good as any white border that I've had. Domaine mm. de Chevalier, Smith Art Lafitte, you name it, it is that good. Mm. And yet you can't sell it. Yeah. Isla is under 300 bucks. It's as good. That's something that you I've noticed. Sell it. Since, I mean, I moved here in 2013, in, in, well, this time six years ago. And at that point, had I asked anybody, Sauvignon, Semillon blends would have been right at the top of the list of some of the best white wines. Now you don't hear about any of them. That's just because I mean, the Magna, no Carta from, Magna Carta from Steenberg was on everyone's lists. Everyone had it. It was there. I can't find a bottle. I haven't seen a bottle in three years. Well, they've had a stock issue in that they couldn't sell it. And they yeah. actually had to cut but, the... I mean, what's the changed there? I mean, is it just the rise of Shannon and Blends? Rise of Shannon, the rise of Chardonnay. Um, people look at Bordeaux White, they don't understand it. There's no... How can I not understand it though? I mean, something three years ago. Surely they're... The yeah, but the, there was only a few back then. Hey? I see. Um, there's a lot more on the market today. Do you think they understood... Do you think they were buying a Bordeaux blend and they were just buying Magna It was Carta? never successful. It was only the wine geeks talking about them. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I don't think too much has changed. We, us wine geeks love Bordeaux white. Yeah. Uh, but um, Bordeaux is very... Bordeaux itself in France has been... Has, has done it well in that they make very little Bordeaux white. You know, it's... Um, it's hmm. uh, de Chevalier, I think, makes... 800 cases or something. Um, I so think, I think it's the perfect amount to be fair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they can keep the prices high. Uh, so you know, maybe we're making too much. It's just a niche wine. No, Shannon, South African Shannon should be what it is. 100 bucks, 200 bucks, 500 rand. There should be a certain style for every single occasion. And there is, yeah. um, you know, something like a Beaumont or a Opstel at 100 rand. That, that for me is my house wine at home. Mm. Um, and if I want something more serious at two or three hundred rand, there's plenty out there. Yeah. And no, it gets gets sillier. Up, and then, up above yeah, and then so much choice. And then at three hundred bucks, yeah, there's lots. And then, you know, if I remember when Neil Martin came down once, I was thinking, what kind of wine can I serve him because he drinks Petrus on a really irregular basis, and served him Mrs. Kirsten because that's not something I get to drink often, mm. and um, it, he loved it. You know, it's world class. So yeah. we have world class Shannon and we have entry level Shannon. So yeah, we should be dominating at Shannon. And I think 
the most important thing is we need to find out what we're best at um, as a producer. Um, each producer must, and then do it and not try and cover well, every single base. So. Yeah, I mean, this brings up another point. What brings up two interesting points. First is, is uh, what's the most important part of the label in terms of determining what's in the bottle, in terms of the quality or style? Is it the producer still or is it the area? Do you think, do you think producer is still the, the dominant force? In producer is still the, the dominant force by far, yeah. um, but we need to get to a point where area is um, important. And the only way for area to be important is for people to collaborate and work together. And working together, this within, is why this, within 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 an yeah. area. Within this is why you feed people wine so they give you the honesty, sort of halfway through the interview. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Two glasses in. <laughs> yeah, um, thirty-five minutes. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, if you go back a decade, um, producers would see each other at Provine every couple of years and then say hi, and that was the end of that. But um, Without working together, you'll never be able to promote your region. Um, mm. People must stop seeing each other as competitors rather as compatriots. And it's taken the Scotland guys to really say it can be done. Um, yeah. And that sort of filtered through the industry. And it's, it's by no means um, working magically yet. But I mean, I was just at the Hilmanada Festival. Um, Pinot Festival and uh, and they're the guys are mostly getting together and they they are pushing. I think they're they're, they're they're in second place. I mean, coming from sort of um, maybe inside and outside, I guess. Mm. When I first moved here, I had no diff no idea what the difference was between Stellenbosch, Pal, and Franchot. Yeah, possibly because there isn't much difference. But um, well, there wasn't six years ago at least. But um, there was a difference in the wines from the Scotland, in my mind, yeah. you know, in, in what was presented in the, in the, in the paradigm. And I think Emblanada has done that also. And Elgin may be starting to separate themselves out of the pack there as well. Which is it's quite very difficult when everyone's trying to find their feet and has different information and is all at different journeys in their, um, in their careers and in their, in their wineries and has different agendas for them to all swim in the same direction. And, um, the more that we can do that, the more that we can find our feet and find out what's what's the best way forward, uh, the more it's going to portray South Africa in international terms um, uh, by appellation. And that's really what we want. We want... Uh, do we really though? I mean, because I mean, there's no laws of what you can plant where and so you can have... I mean, you look at the Emelin Arda, there's freaking cabinet down there in, in what's... I think, I think for, 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 you, for you to be put on the map, you need to be uh, known uh, by appellation. Um, mm. One producer can never make enough wine, and if they make too much wine, then they, they're never going to make it um, um, with integrity. But one producer is never going to push an entire region or entire country forward, you don't in think, my view. No. You don't think Penfolds has done that for Australia? But they've got a massive oh, producers no, behind them no, doing no. exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah. But not, they weren't... You know, I mean, I just use them as an example because it's, sure. it's, it's front of mind for me. Um, okay, they've done that. Yeah. Um, maybe Alma Viva has for Chile, but we, yeah. we haven't had that. So yeah. if, you, if you're going to try and start that now... Um, no, you can't do it now, I don't think. Well, there's, there's two potentials, maybe Distel or KWV, but they're not, they're not jumping up to that plate anytime no. soon, I don't think. Um, so, you know, if you look at Hamilton Russell and Boschard, they've been pushing the Himalada for mm -hmm. 20, 30 years, and... They've basically been the drivers of the appellation, but it's a tiny appellation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think 
you need to have momentum with at least a variety and a appellation to to formulate a, an opinion in wine drinkers' heads. Have and, some consistency um, in the market. And once that information is there, then sure you can you can show something else. But mm. um, look, there are some tremendously successful producers in the Himalada which like creation and they may, must make 20 different wines and they're super successful. Yeah, so, Grenache and so you know, who am I to say, focus on Pinot Noir, but um, it doesn't seem right for me that only a quarter of the plantings in Himalaya are Pinot Noir. It just, how can you be recognized as a Pinot Noir producer if you're not putting your eggs into Pinot Noir, you're putting them into everything, everything else. Yeah. Um, so I think it's time for us to hang our hat on something mm. and, uh, and otherwise we, we're all going to be swimming in the wrong direction. And at some point you've got to put your stake in the ground and say, that's how it is. Yeah. And in terms of, I mean, the journey over time, because I, I maybe wanted to talk to you about sort of like the last 10 years of, of wine in South Africa, um, you know, in 10 minutes. <laughs> and then maybe we can sort of start projecting a little bit. I mean, obviously the last 10 years have been arguably the most momentous 10 years in history of South African wine at the quality point. Um, I don't know if you agree with that statement or not. Yeah, I think so. Um, if you look at the numbers, the Niederberg auction... You, you like numbers, don't you? I love numbers. <laughs> um, numbers. Numbers don't lie and they can paint a picture. Uh, but if you look at the numbers, uh, the, the price um, increases at the Niederberg auction, at the Cape Winemakers Guild auction, they've been a reflection of what the market sentiment has been. Mm. And um, the wines haven't really changed in quality at those two auctions much over that period, um, but the sentiment, the demand for them has yeah. changed radically and that's produced different, you know, different demands and different prices. Mm. Uh, so, and then the vintage wines that we sell on a, on a daily basis, we, we never even got involved in them when I started here and slowly but surely we started highlighting a few and now we think we've got a very good idea of what the market prices of all, all important South African vintage wines are mm. and we're pushing the prices and the customers are responding um, yeah. and we're building liquidity on that vintage mark, market um, day by day mm. and uh, that's exciting that shows you that people have got more confidence and there's more demand in the market. And that didn't happen by itself. Obviously, people don't get excited by the same things um, all of a sudden. It has been a, there has been a change in production over those 10 years. I mean, there's a lot more wines now that um, are being produced that are, you know, the top end wines. I mean, you look at the, 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 um, the um, what's it called, a, a survey that, um, that Tim James does. So, you know, yes. there's 50 people or 30 people and says, well, what are the who are the top 20 South African producers? Yeah, it's morphed completely, hasn't it's, it? It's, it's changed. I mean, 90% of it's changed in five years. What, I mean, who, who started that? What was the, what was, in your opinion, or what was it? A, was it a collection of things? Well, it was a, a realization that with, you didn't need vineyards to make fine wine. And I think that, um, I mean, the negotiation model has been there, but it takes confidence. It, I think you need to have confidence in, in, in sales to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the first young guns were doing it blind because they had youth on their side and they're like, oh, let's give it a shot. Um, and what year was that? Well, the first Young Guns was the same as the Swatland Revolution, 2011. Mm. Um, and that was really at the start when Brian McRobert, Craig Hawkins, um, Elemental Bob, all these guys were just, just putting some wine together. And that yeah. was 
But this is also 10 years after Yibin and Tom had started. Yeah, so Tom, in my view, was, was too early. He, um, he, he gave up too quickly. Um, uh, not that he gave up, but yeah, yeah. that's just what the, what the market uh, could handle. And Yibin's first 10 years wasn't easy. You can, yeah. you can ask him. Um, it certainly wasn't, wasn't easy, those first 10 years. And we had to... Um, we, we, we didn't sell much of the first columellas. I think the first vintages we sold were seven or eight, something like that. Um, and um, it only just started kick-started when Eben's assistants, Jürgen, Jasper, Brian, Craig, they were given the enlightening, enlightenment of this, was, this is what South Africa could be. This is how you do it. You farm correctly. You put it into the bottle. You don't fuck it around too much. And you can actually make some really good wine. And so they were given the confidence by Eben and and um, the guys around Eben um, to to put wine into bottle and to market it and yeah, I, that, yeah I mean I mean I know a lot of those guys uh, and I work with a lot, mm. um, some of those guys as well I don't think they've got confidence in a in a market sense they got confidence in the production side yeah. I mean they weren't saying oh Eben's killing it mm. so let's do what he yeah. does they just really respected what he was exactly. doing what he was putting exactly. in bottle yeah they didn't know where they could sell it and no, a lot of them <laughs> and a lot of them actually um, made terrible wines in the mm. beginning um, but at least they got kick started and somehow they, they got it right um, and it was a time the Mullineaux came out in 2010 um, mm. and I remember offering the Mullineaux wines to our database uh, around that time and People were dumbstruck. It was like, "What is this Swatland Syrah at 180 rand? Mm. Mad, you know?" Yeah, I, mean, I, I got married in South Africa in 2007. Um, I think Jeanette was working for yeah. you about that time, maybe just before, just after, maybe even at that time. I can't remember exactly. Um, and we had TMV wines at our wedding made by the Molinux, mm. the Tilbach Merton Vineyard. So it was, it was, it's, it's been a long sort of. It's been a long, journey. long journey, and if you look at the. You look at the Mullineaux and um, TMV, Cully also worked there. Yeah. Um, That's where I first met Cully. He, yeah. he was the first Afrikaans guy to, that I met who, who swore to, as much as I normally do. <laughs> <laughs> and then, the, you know, you look at Reineke. Reineke had the Mullineaux. Uh, Reineke was a breeding ground for mm. some top winemakers. Yeah. Um, and um, so I think people like Johan Reineke, people like Ibn Saadi, you know, they really have spread their seeds throughout the industry. Mm. And that was the, the, the tipping point, essentially. From a commercial side, though, like actually selling it into the local market, what were the first successes in that sort of new breed of, 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 of wines? I mean, obviously you said... Well, what they were bucking um, against uh, was terrible distribution. You know, mm. thank goodness you guys have upped, upped the general quality of distribution mm. in South Africa. But I... I was writing letters to distribution CEOs 10 years ago about how putrid their service was and how they can't understand what wine actually is. You know, they would sell it like any product and you'd order a 2010 and you'd get a 2009 and they couldn't give a shit. Um, And it was like that for years and no one cared. And it's taken the likes of yourself and public to to actually care about the distribution. And um, you guys have ruffled the, the feathers because without you these young guns and new producers wouldn't have conduits to the market mm. and um you know um you're just as important um, so i think that's been really important too um and, but i think the international but you sort of, I mean, feeling what, what, of what, what, what i'm sort of getting at what i'm sort of asking i'm trying to get to is 
what was the first accepted for by the South African drinking public? What was the what, what were the wines that was first accepted by them and willing to pay for of that new breed? I mean, well, I think the Malinese, as, as you said, you know, Yerbin struggled. I mean, when, um, I, when I first got here, you could buy four different vintages of Skerfberg yeah. from Yerbin. Mm. They were still available. Yeah, well, the first, six years ago. The first Earl Vine series, we, we came in a pack of five. Mm. We ordered 20. And after about three months, we still had about eight left. And I said, oh, really? Yerbin, this is hurting, hurting us. Can we give them back to you? Yeah. <laughs> we couldn't sell them. Yeah. That was about two and a half thousand rand a case. Mm -hmm. We sold the last one at about 30,000 rand. Mm. Um, so it shows you how much things have changed. So um, he said no, did he? <laughs> no, you took them back back then. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> um, but, you, can, you um, can't win every time. No. But, um, so you say Malinus was one of the first ones that sort of was... Yeah, I guess they, they were the ones that really changed the status quo, weren't they? I mean, they well, were. I don't know. I'm asking you. I, yeah. I wasn't. I wasn't really at that. They active, they so. set themselves up in the Swatland. Um, yeah. There was we didn't sell the Stellenbosch wines for a very long time. I mean, mm. because they just they they weren't making um, they were making wine that they had done for the last ten years, and frankly, it wasn't all that exciting. Mm. Um, but um, no, the Malinese are probably the ones that have have. Uh, were the first ones to really buck the system and do it hard and were, became successful, absolutely. Yeah, cool. Um, trying to think who else. Adi, maybe, or is he a bit later? I think he was a bit later, yeah. yeah. So I think um, Secateurs has been quite important. That um, was that was big in the in the in the early part of it, yeah. Yeah. Um, so just getting getting it out there in terms of that sort of that wide reach as you were talking about before, like putting a putting a um, a personality on the Swatland. I think um, Secateurs does that really well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sure, I'm and it's affordable. Think. You know, like if people can just—they're not—they're not—you're not spending six hundred bucks a bottle on, on yeah. that. It's a hundred bucks or whatever it was, probably probably sixty bucks back then. Yeah, and then I think people that were really pushing it, um, like Takara, you know, they were one of the first traditional Stellenbosch wineries to make modern wines that was much okay. more pure fruited yes. and more acceptable and. I mean, those wines have aged beautifully, whereas some of the other old-school producers they haven't aged as well. Yeah. Um, so they also pushed the fine wine agenda. Um, but yeah, I mean, over time, we didn't sell much local wines back in the day. We didn't. And yeah, it's, right. as the rand appreciated, our local sales increased, and thankfully the quality increased at the same time. So yes. we had the confidence to sell them. So and, you've, uh, you've had to have a sort of a change in uh, business model. Completely, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, which is great because we love selling wine. We want to sell fine wine at a, that offers good value. And if at the moment South African Shannon offers the best value in the world, we'd love to sell it. Um, and if some wines are maybe not as well well priced at the moment, then we won't sell them. Um, we and it's great to be patriotic as well. I mean, I'd love to sell water first rates every day, but. Um, you know, at, no, I don't sell them, just drink them. Yeah, at 10,000 <laughs> Rand a bottle, it's no, just no, no one drinks them. That's the yeah. problem. Well, not very few people drink when them. I, when I first started here, you could buy a first growth for 1,000 Rand, 1,500 Rand, which if, in, a, in a special month, if you had a bit of cash, you could actually afford and drink. You could actually put it away. But now at 10 grand, you think, geez, mm. that would do really nicely in my bond, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's going to save me a lot of cash in a few years' time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, the world of wine has changed um, dramatically. Um, what else would you like to know, Mr. Clark? No, no, I'm, I'm more interested in what you want to talk about. I mean, is there anything that you're super excited about that, that, that is underappreciated in South African wine? Or is that for you to know? No, there are, a few, there are a few trends um, starting. I think South African Pinot is getting 
much better. At you know, five years ago, even SAP Noir still didn't have the purity and um, the balance that it has today. I think we're really getting much better at Pinot Noir. People like Hannah Storm, Peter Allen, um, even Creation, um, which I think was a little bit dickfoot in the beginning, has become a lot more purer in, in style. Um, uh, it's a thick foot. Yes. It's some <laughs> Ostionet. <what> <laughs> But uh, no, so South African peanut, I think, is 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 on the rise. Mm -hmm. I think South African riesling is on the do you think rise. It's, do you think it's overpriced currently? South African peanut. Do you think it's it's priced to bear? I think to it's be priced where it's at. I think at four hundred rand, you're getting some really delicious peanut because okay. you, you think you're getting value. At I think rice. so because okay. you can't really get peanut elsewhere at, around the world at four hundred rand. It's really good. That has that sort of. You can buy cheap Chilean stuff or really cheap French stuff, but it's not going to be nice. Without elegance, yeah. But you can buy, you know, if you think about something like an Eaton Johnson at 380, 400 rand, that's damn delicious wine nice at that bottle. price. Yeah. Um, so that, that's great. I think Riesling, um, once we get it right in Elgin, I think can be a really good drop. Maybe some cooler, um, cooler areas. Um, no, have, I, you, have you tasted much from like series and those sort of high altitude places? Only a few. Uh, there haven't been any serious releases from yeah. those regions. No, super young wines, mm. obviously. So I'd be really keen to to, mm. to taste that. Um, uh, otherwise, I think we need to continue with our old vine stuff and old vine Shannon. And um, I think Cabernet is getting better and better every every year. 2015 cab, we're doing a tasting tonight. Mm. Um, the cabs are the best they've ever been, in my view. Yeah, let's, um, let's chat about 15 mm. versus 17, actually, mm. for, for a moment, because that's, that's super relevant at the moment. And in the market, I'm finding um, lots of uh, pushback against 16 and 18, and yeah, lots of acceptance of 15 it's a and bit, 17. It's a bit of a catch-22. You highlight the great vintages, and then you can't sell the crap vintages. But Or you just lie to people, that's the other option. <laughs> So yeah, we, we shot ourselves in the foot a bit by saying that 15 and 17 are so good and, then, and then you have to buy the 16s yeah. to get the 17s. But um, so I think it's really the top producers that have made reasonable 16s, otherwise we've tasted some bad 16s. Yeah. Um, 18s I think is a step up on 16, there's some really nice 18s that I've tried, mm. but there's some also weak, weak 18s as well. Mm. Um, 15 for me, for the, for the serious reds so far. and. Uh, 17 for the serious whites so far, mm. um, but uh, we haven't tasted much of the 17 reds, the serious 17 reds yet. So, mm. and then it's also difficult to call across the the regions. Um, 16 Swatland for me is better than 15 Swatland, for instance. Mm. Um, 16 Swatland is really good. good. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, so you need to know your your, your appellations. But I think mm. we've started. I, th I think that's producer specific as well. Mm. Exactly, um, and the droughts also played a, a big role. So the droughts impact in the Swatland is much heavier than it is in Hilmalada or, or Stellenbosch. Yeah. Uh, but um, we're getting Cabernet right, and that's a that's a hard nut to crack. Mm. Um, I think Is it? I mean, that, that was, I mean, Cabernet, when, uh, I mean, my first sort of journey into South Africa in a wine sense um, was Cape Wine 2006. And that was a fucking disaster. I was like very depressed when I left that. But everyone was talking about how amazing South African Cabernet was at then. So, and that, and that seemed to be an historical fact that South Africa especially Stellenbosch Cabernet. Yeah, out of, out of all the wines we could make, it was probably one of the better ones, yeah. I think. And because it's got this um, very leafy, farmyardy, earthy character, 
oh, all of a sudden it's like Bordeaux, you know? Oh, so okay. it's, so uh, it's distinctive, therefore it's good. It's, yeah, it's distinctive. Okay. It can be Bordeaux-like, therefore it's good. And remember, there's some really horrible Bordeaux's out there from weak vintages and so on. Yeah. But um, there's more, no, there's a lot more, of those wines... There's more bad Bordeaux out there than there is yeah. good Bordeaux. So sure. a, lot of, a lot of South African Cabernet um, fits it into that old school feel, which today is just that. It's old school. It doesn't have the purity of fruit and balance that it should have. Mm. Um, but today, there are few of those wines, and they're much more purer wines. Um, I mean, tonight we're tasting 14 Cabernets from 2015. Not one of them is over 15% alcohol, which I think is at least admirable. Um, and so we're careful, finding... careful selection, though, obviously. No, well, <laughs> maybe. Um, uh, but uh, I think we're getting the balance on Cabernet. Mm. Uh, Just one last thing before we run yeah. up, wrap her up. Um, you and I were at a tasting recently of lots of South African, old mm. South African wines um, going back sort of 40, 50 years. That seems to have been a, a reawakening, a, a, re, a, re, a renaissance of, uh, of awareness of these old wines. Um, I mean, no one was talking about these old wines when I first arrived and now Big time. everyone is chasing them. Big um, time. We just, they well, weren't what, around. What, what, well, they must have been. Okay, no one was talking about them. I mean, the, yeah. I only got awakened to them, I think, in 2007 when I wrote, read an article by Michael Fridjohn online mm. about his top wines he's ever tasted from South Africa. And, I, you know, I never even heard of taste these wines. And then I found a GS66 and, wow, this wine is amazing. And mm. now we're selling them for, for stupid prices. Yeah. Um, not stupid, but high. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, well, only comparatively to what yes. they were being sold. So for, really yeah. it's because there hasn't been a platform or a, a structured secondary market. So if you were to buy but an old Chateau Libertin. I don't think that's necessary too, because there's not, there's not a structured market per se yet. I mean, I know you're, you're establishing one now, but the awareness even within, within the industry now of these old wines is tenfold what it was okay, well, five years ago. Maybe the journalists back at those times were, was not... We're not confident of the quality, A. Yeah. Maybe B, it wasn't exciting to write about them because it yeah. was all pre-apartheid or apartheid sort of stuff, yes. secondly. Oh, so enough time um, has passed. That, yeah, and, yeah. And, and also, um, no one cared really, I guess. It was mm. all the new South Africa, let's taste the new stuff. Let's, yeah, um, okay. So now we're delving back and we're actually highlighting mm. them. But you're completely right. I mean, those world best arms were blown away by those wines. Mm. And it's just a pity we don't have a lot of those wines that have been sorted correctly that are available to the market, because yeah. that's really the problem. You can go and buy an old Chateau Libertas, but if it hasn't been stored correctly, it's literally not worth buying or selling or drinking. Yeah, um, I mean, those wines, even though the good ones are still drinking amazingly well, they weren't made to age, and they weren't packaged in a way to age. The corks are you know, about as big as your little finger, the last, yeah. the last section of your little finger, if you're lucky. And yeah. I don't know if you were there when that quote came out, but um, one of the songs, I can't remember which, compared the... 1990 Rudeberg to Chateau Rias. Yes, and then, then two others agreed. <laughs> yeah, which I thought um, needs to be said somewhere because uh, Rudeberg, you know, it was a nice wine, but it was it showed really well in the day. Mm. And uh, yeah. well, that's and that's it. I mean, there's no great wines on the great bottles, isn't no. there? And that's especially true. So. But no, there was that. There were one or two duds in that whole tasting, and. Uh, if I go back to that 62 Zonnebloom cab, it was... That was bizarre, it was yeah. It's as good as anyone could be at, at 60 years old, frankly. Yeah, yeah. And so we've got lots to go on. And, and so that 62 Zonnebloom Cabernet, had, we, had, had I sold it to you, how much could you sell it for today? 6,000 Rand. Okay. That's still not much, is it, considering it's... 
60 rand, it's, yeah, it's 60 not, years old. It's not a, it's not a first growth sort of price, yeah. no. Yeah. Um, uh, but let's see. Um, hopefully, there'll be some movement in the market and yeah. moving forward. And we, we're trying our best to formalize it and to, uh, and but you know, I don't think that's going to be the focus of us. The focus is really on today's wines, making sure that they're on the market in 20, 30 years time. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I think the wines we're making now have the ability to go. And, um, you know, we saw that not too long ago when Eben opened up every columella that he's made mm. um, over 20 years. Not one of them is falling over. Yes, they're different styles and so yes, on, yes. but not one of them. They're all well-made wines. They're all well-made wines yeah. and they're going to age 20, 30 years. So that shows you the New South Africa can make great wines. And, um, yeah, we've got lots to go on. It just, you know, I go back to it. It's, it's about um, how, how much effort are we willing to put in? Who's we, as in the industry or? The industry, the vigneron, the grower, the viticulturist, yeah, okay. because the guys that have made fine wine, um, their obsession, their livelihood, the Burgundians, the Bordelais, the, the guys from the Rhone, Italy, they live and breathe and eat and uh, drink wine. That's what they do. Um, and the marketeer is the winemaker, is the viticulturist, is the logistics guy, is, they're everything. And, and that's how they've, uh, put one on the map for their specific region or for their appellation. Mm. But um, I think a lot of the way that we think about wine in South Africa is it's a job and um, you just do what you need to do and you pass it on to the next guy and that's it. It's and, a fast-moving consuming yeah, route. And frankly, that's not the way you're going to put wine on the map. Um, mm. you, need to, you need to put your heart in the bottle and that's difficult to do. And with the proliferation of uh, negotiant-style producers buying um, fruit or leasing vineyards, Going forward, I mean, there's a, there's loads more producers now than there was at the quality end. Um, what's going to happen? Do you think uh, entropy or you know um, natural selection will take effect? Is there enough room for all of sure them? Should do. Yeah, I mean, this year. Do you think there's too many? Do you think there's too many brands out there? No, I don't think so. Um, I think it's, do you think the I think it's can very important for the producer to understand how much to make, and I think that's where guys are maybe burning themselves a bit if they're making too much. The market likes small bits of rare wine. Lots of stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but maybe the droughts, you know, playing into that into that hand, it just mm. means the grape prices must go up. I mean, I heard this year that the Swat Londons are getting two, three tons on a hectare, which even if you're paying 10, 12, 15,000 on a ton is not going to be sustainable. So mm. those farms are, farmers are going to pull out the vineyards and therefore those wines will not be available anymore. Um, mm. So the drought's going to play a big role in that. And then yeah, it's about making a sustainable business model, which in wine is very difficult to do. Making money out of wine is difficult in let's, any level. Let's end on a positive note. Okay, though. on a positive note. What's, what's, I mean, obviously there's lots of positives in South African wine. Going forward, what do you see as... Uh, the most positive thing I think in the industry at the moment is that I could pick up the phone, you could pick up the phone, any winemaker could pick up the phone speak to a friend, a neighbor, a confidant, and ask them an honest question and get a helpful answer. People are collaborating, people are helping okay. each other. Okay, the camaraderie is, it's, is the real. The camaraderie is there, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, which I think is the only way to, to push the quality moving mm. forward. Yeah. Roland Peens, thank you very much. David Clark, thank you very much. And for the reasoning? No, easy, cheers man. <laughs>